Welcome to Envision Community Church's Ridiculous Love Podcast. Whether you attend our Longmont-based services or tune in online, we're so glad that you're here as part of our funky and fully affirming church today. We begin each of our podcasts just as we begin each of our services with our ethos. Married, divorced, and single here, it's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here, we've all got to give a little here. Big and small here, there's room for us all here. Doubt and believe here, we all can receive here. LGBTQ plus and straight here, there is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here, everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. If you'd like to financially contribute to our church and our partners, you can text any amount to 84321. And now, on to this week's sermon. We're going to go ahead and continue our study of the book of Romans. And tonight, we're looking at Romans 3 and 4. And like I said last week, Romans was written by Paul to the church in Rome, and the church there was facing a problem. It was not as significant a problem as they were facing in Galatia or in Corinth, but it was a problem nevertheless. And the problem was that the Jewish Christians, which made up about half the Christians in Rome, were trying to force the non-Jewish Christians, which made up the other half, to follow Jewish law as well as following the teachings of Jesus. And so I'll often have people say to me, what relevance is there to what was going on in the first century when the Jewish people were trying to force their beliefs on the non-Jewish Christians? There is great relevance to it. And I want to talk about that as we begin tonight. So you've heard me say so many times, you probably can quote it, that there are only three moral standards for our species. The first moral standard, and the oldest, is that there is no greater moral good than to protect the integrity of the tribe. That moral standard's been around for eons. The second moral standard, also very, very old, is that there is no greater moral good than to obey the teachings of the gods. And that moral standard is true for every form of fundamentalism, any place, any religion, you find it in the world. And the third moral standard is the youngest of the three, and it comes from the teachings of Jesus. And the third moral standard is that there is no greater moral good than to protect the freedom and integrity of the individual. So when it comes to that second moral standard, it is the moral standard of all forms of fundamentalism. And in the Middle East, it's primarily Islam fundamentalism. Here in the United States, it's primarily evangelical Christianity and fundamentalist Christianity. And that is, in fact, their moral standard. And I think it's important for all of us to understand the reality is that the evangelical fundamentalist community on the whole at the leadership level in the United States is not interested in the separation of church and state. In fact, very unfortunately, they believe that we should be a theocracy and that the United States is God's chosen nation. Now, you can identify these churches because on July 4th, they will have huge celebrations that mention everything about God and country. And it is, in fact, a prime belief of theirs, which is not in agreement with our Constitution. But make no mistake about it. Their goal is to make America be a theocracy. And not just a theocracy, but a theocracy according to their definition 
of what the Bible says and what God wants us to do. And so they have three subjects they care about now. The first subject is abortion. What does the Bible say about abortion? Nothing. The Bible says not one thing on the subject of abortion. So what is, in fact, the moral code by which we, as a congregation, would determine what is right and what is wrong within the realm of abortion? Will it be the same as the moral code that guides us in everything we do, which is the final public teaching of Jesus, to love God, love neighbor, and love self? So when it comes to any action, the question we want to ask is, can I love God with this action? Can I love my neighbor with this action? And can I love myself with this action? And when it comes to deciding whether or not to have an abortion, who would be best situated to determine whether doing that is in fact what's best for their neighbor, what's best for themselves, and what's best for God? And it would be our strong feeling that that is up to the woman because she is the one best positioned to determine what it is that will allow her to love God, what it is that will allow her to love her neighbor, which includes the unborn child, and what is it that will allow her to love herself. And it's a tough one. It's an extremely difficult decision for a woman to make. And so I think it's incredibly important for us as a church to be there to support the woman in whatever conclusion she reaches because it's ultimately her body, her decision. That, I think, is how we love God, love neighbor, and love self. At this point, we stand close to the person who has to make the decision. We pray with them. We talk with them. We listen to them. And whatever decision they make, that is the decision they make. And it's our responsibility in loving them and God and our neighbor to support them in that. That is not what most of evangelical or fundamentalist Christianity would teach. The second subject they want to focus on right now is transgender rights. They identified over 500 different laws or introduced over 500 different laws. Over 80 have been signed into law. The most recent, if I were to move to Kansas, would cause my driver's license to say that I'm a male which, of course, would make me incredibly unsafe anywhere in Kansas at any place else that looked at that driver's license. Not something I want to see a law enforcement officer looking at, but that is now the law in Kansas, including that I would actually have to change. If I were a resident there and had my driver's license there, they actually now would change it by law and send me a new driver's license showing male, not female. But note that most of the anti-trans laws are focused on children. Again, loving God, loving neighbor, loving self. Who is best positioned to determine whether or not a child should be treated medically or any other way for their gender identity? It would seem to me the people who have been caring for children forever, the parents, it is their responsibility to make that decision. It is not the responsibility of the state to make that decision unless you believe it's your responsibility to turn your nation into a theocracy that interprets the scripture by your limited rules. And the third area is queer rights, particularly marriage equality. I hate to mention this, but you do realize we are just one Supreme Court justice from changing their minds on this subject to losing that to Obergefell going the same direction, having happened to Obergefell what happened with Dobbs. 
All it would take would be Gorsuch changing his mind or John Roberts changing his mind. And we would end up with a court that would decide it's not right. And make no mistake, that entire evangelical fundamentalist world is focused very much in that direction because they want to take away those legal rights. Now, none of these are mentioned really in Scripture. As we talked about last week, yeah, gay relationships might be mentioned in Scripture, but the most significant passage is the one we dealt with last week, Romans 1, and it's clear in that passage, it's not talking about, they knew nothing about consensual gay relationships. And so they've chosen three subjects that are nowhere in Scripture. And those are the tests they're making. Now, it might also just be kind of curious, don't you think? That all three of those things do not much affect straight adult males. Because straight adult males are not going to have abortions. 95% um, of them, well, 100% of them are straight, but 95% of males are straight. And only 0.5% identified male at birth are transgender. So if, in fact, you're a religious leader and you want to choose a huge social issue that you can take a stand on and force your entire nation to follow your teachings, you might be inclined to choose something that's going to cost you nothing. And note that for the majority of those in law positions of leadership in government, any one of those three positions costs them nothing. So Paul is speaking to that same mindset, and he's got stuff to say about it, and I want us to pick it up there. Third chapter. Paul has been talking about the fact that, yeah, you guys say that non-Jewish Christians are doing all these things. Well, you're doing them too. And then he says, there is no one righteous, not even one, verse 10. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And then he goes on to describe, this is sin. What he's describing here is sin. Now, throughout the book of Romans, you're going to discover he never talks about sin as being that which is zipped up inside of us. He's not talking about even what I mentioned last week, the notion of existential guilt, of those parts of yourself that you recognize you're not really ever going to get a hold of. They're always going to be with you to the end of your days. He's not talking about that as sin. In this book, sin is quite specifically what we tend to do in groups we would never do on our own. I want to say that again because it's going to come out throughout the entire book. Sin in the book of Romans is defined as the capacity we have to do things in groups that we would not do on our own. That is the way sin is being defined. And what are the two ways in which it most commonly expresses itself? In what we say, the tongue, and who we follow. And what are the two things he's talking about here? what we say and who we follow. He's talking about sin as what we say and sin as who we follow. It's interesting to me why people lie. You know, there is a time that it's all right to lie. Leave a little suspense there. When is it all right to lie? To protect the life of the innocent. It's also all right not to tell the truth. 
if the person to whom we're speaking does not have the emotional capacity to handle that truth. But here's the problem with that second one. We as humans tend to underestimate the capacity of others to, to hear the truth. And so we are inclined to not get that one right. When do you, in fact, choose not to speak the truth? Well, for most of us, it's actually neither one of those times. Most of the time, we lie for one of two reasons. We lie to escape the consequences of a decision we've made. We're really good at that. You know, one of the things that I love that people say all the time is, they'll make a pejorative comment, and then they'll say, I'm just kidding. Do you know what it means when you say, I'm just kidding? It means it got out of your mouth before you could stop it. That's what it means. Because you're not just kidding. You think by saying, I'm just kidding, you are in fact freeing yourself of any guilt related to what you said. But the truth of the matter is, if you say, oh, I'm just kidding, you're not. And everybody knows it. What you've done is you've allowed yourself to say something that you instantly regret. And so that's how you try to get out of it. So most commonly, we don't tell the truth when we don't want to suffer the consequences of telling the truth. And we are all guilty of that. Not our better moments. But here's another time we tend not to tell the truth. When we want people to believe something that we ourselves have bought into but might have doubts about. And so we will, in fact, parrot the words of someone else because it will further our cause. Now that, doing that, as a television network, cost Fox News $785 million. Because in their opinion shows, they very clearly spoke what they knew not to be true. The Dominion voting systems was corrupt. But they said it anyway because they wanted to further their cause, which was the far-right agenda, and in their case, the dollars that go along with high ratings. It was all to the focus of getting higher ratings, more money, which they knew they could do by furthering the cause of the far right. And what does that more than anything else? Threats. We as humans pay more attention to threats than anything else. They know that. They have figured out how to make money on that. And so often, when we speak something we know not to be true, it is to further a cause we actually know does not have the information, the facts to back it up. Have you noticed what every single person says who's been convicted on January 6th of sedition or any of the lesser charges? Virtually every single one of them has said, I'm not really that kind of a person. I never would have done that on my own. Oh, see, this is sin. It's that we do have a tendency in groups to behave in ways we would never behave on our own. Has that explanation gotten anybody off? No one. Because the truth is, even when you're with a group of people, you have agency. When you're with a group of people, you have the ability to walk away. You have the ability to say, I'm the only one who's saying this, but I do not agree with you. Every one of those people had the ability not to break in to the Capitol building. But we have the capacity to do in groups things we would not ever consider doing on our own. So that's sin he's talking about here. Sin as, and you'll hear me say these words over and over again, a cosmic 
malevolent force. Now, there's also a cosmic benevolent force. There is the work of the Spirit through groups of people. I would hope to think that we as a church are a cosmic benevolent force. But what we see clearly in the world, particularly right now, and particularly in this nation, among those who think we should be a theocracy, is people saying and doing things they know not to be true and being a part of a cosmic malevolent force. It's going to come back to that in the sixth chapter and the seventh chapter of the book of Romans. But let's go on to the second subjects he's considering in chapter three. Second subject in chapter three begins in verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes from faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again, remember, he's talking about sin as our capacity to do things in groups we would never do on our own. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented himself as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Okay, we probably need to deal with that passage. Because for the last 2,000 years, the church has been teaching in its larger expression, so like within the Roman Catholic Church, it's only the Franciscans who have not been teaching this, the church has been teaching that we have a God who cannot stand us as we are who has no choice but to send us to hell unless a sacrifice is made. Now, this has been an understanding of humans for millennia. And about 5,000 years ago, the sacrifice had to be a human sacrifice. And then from around 5,000 years ago to 2,000 years ago, the sacrifice could be an animal sacrifice. But still, there's an angry God. That angry God is demanding that you pay a price for your sin and so there has to be something that appeases that God's anger, and it is the sacrifice you give to God. So it's the animal, or a long time ago, it's actually another human being. And that has continued to be taught, only now it's taught over the last 2,000 years that Jesus was the sacrifice. That Jesus died and shed his blood to make God no longer angry to appease his angry father. And yes, in their case, God is always father. This has been taught for the last 2,000 years because of passages like this that say we are saved through the blood of Jesus. We are. Jesus saves us from our sins, and we are saved through the blood of Jesus, but not in the way you think. I mean, just for a second, I want to kind of go back to that whole idea. I always find it interesting to talk about what's called the substitutionary atonement to people with no religious background because they don't bring with them an entire lifetime of indoctrination that causes them to believe something nobody would ever believe from a common sense perspective. So let's say you're dating somebody, you're thinking about marrying someone. You're planning your wedding, you're talking about children, and at some point the person you're going to marry says, oh yeah, if, by, the, by the way, I keep forgetting to tell you, if my children aren't perfect, I'm going to have to kill them. And, well, there might be, might be a circumstance in which I wouldn't kill them, 
but only if you will die in their place. Are you likely to marry that person? I mean, from a common sense perspective, this makes no sense whatsoever. And yet still so much of Christianity believes it. So in what way does Jesus die for our sin? He tells us in Mark 10. So if in fact that's your world, the world that God is angry and that a sacrifice has to be made to appease the angry God because of your sin, all of your sin, every one of your sins, what are you going to become obsessed with? Your sin. You're going to focus completely on everything you've done wrong. It's all going to be about your sin because you're desperately terrified of going to hell. And so your entire life becomes focused on not sinning. Your whole life becomes focused on the notion that God is angry with you as you are, and so you're going to have to do something to cause that God not to be angry, and you become obsessed with it, and you are, in fact, hostage to it. And so Jesus says, I came and paid the ransom to make you no longer hostage to that notion that has been taught to you. I have come to tell you that God loves you as you are, I don't care what your sins are. God's love is complete all the time. God does not demand a sacrifice. Jesus came to tell us that, that God loves us and accepts us just as we are, to free us from this addiction we have to focusing on what we've done wrong, focusing on our sins. But now let's say you're a religious leader. Oh, we'll just kind of maybe stick right now with the Catholics because it makes it simpler. What are the two things a, a Catholic priest, the two miracles that priest can perform, he can perform, always oh, a guy? One is to turn the bread and the juice into the actual body and the blood of Christ, so what's called transubstantiation. And then the second miracle a priest can perform is to forgive you of your sins. This is why the last rites is so important, particularly to conservative Catholics, because if a priest does not forgive my sins right before I die, then any sins I commit after I die are going to cause me to be punished after I die. So having a priest forgive my sins right before I die, that's essential. Do you realize for 2,000 years how much power that is given to the priests? Oh, but now let's switch over to the evangelical world. So, what if you're a religious leader and you want your people to be terrified of hell because if they're terrified of hell, well, then they will stay loyal to you and you will maintain your power and people will come to church every Sunday and they will, in fact, give 10% of their income. And so you keep your position of power. That's great. And so what subject are you going to pick to make sure that they feel their sinfulness? You're going to pick the one that doesn't cost you anything. You're going to pick abortion, trans issues, and gay issues. Jesus died because the religious authorities hated him and would not tolerate someone who said, God loves you just as you are. People don't tolerate this church for the same reason. We get hate mail for the same reason. Because those in power will lose their power if they're not the ones to offer forgiveness. Jesus loves us just as we are. God loves us just as we are. The religious authorities killed him for it. He shed his blood because of our sin. So when people say that Jesus shed his blood because of our sin, it's true. When they say that Jesus gave his life 
for our sin. It's true. But we don't sing songs that say that because we don't want people to misunderstand it. The way in which it's true is by telling us that we don't have to worry about it. It will not send us to hell. God loves us just as we are. So you've heard me many, many times give the poem that I've known for like 20 years of Mary Oliver, Wild Geese. The second half of the poem is, tell me about despair yours and I will tell you mine. Meantime, the world goes on. Meantime, the sun, the clear pebbles of rain are moving across the landscapes, over the mountains, the valleys, the rivers, and the deep trees. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are headed home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination. It calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. For the first ten years I had that poem memorized. That's how I quoted it. Because if I dared quote it in an evangelical environment the way it was written, I would be driven from the room. Because how is it written? Well, these are its first lines. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Thank you, God, for coming to earth to turn everything upside down and to tell us we're loved as we are because, well, it's in your nature to love. Thank you, then, for giving us that as a moral barometer, a moral compass to guide us to know the decisions we make, we will make, based on whether or not they allow us to love the God who accepts us as we are, whether or not they allow us to love our neighbor, particularly those not like us, and whether they allow us to love ourselves, which, oh God, as you know only too well, is the toughest one of all. Thank you for teaching us when the day is done, it's not sin that wins, it's love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. To learn more, go to envisioncommunitychurch.org or facebook.com forward slash envisioncommunitychurch. Thank you for joining us.